Blog Talk Radio. Should we are really singing the answers to life, most important questions. And thanks for seeing Trivia Toll Radio. And I get started with the lesson. This is John MacArthur and the Doctrines of Actual Atonement, Part Two, here on Trivia Toll Radio. What he did on the cross was not a partial atonement. What he did was not a potential atonement. It was not some kind of virtual atonement. It was a real, actual atonement. There is no such thing as an atonement by Jesus Christ on the cross that is less than a true and actual atonement. That was an excerpt from today's sermon where John's going to help you understand one of Christianity's most important truths, 
the doctrine of the atonement. So what does it mean that Christ died for sinners? And how can you know that Christ died for you? Keep those questions in mind as John MacArthur continues one of his most popular series titled The Doctrines of Grace. We're airing this classic study as we continue to celebrate 50 years of verse-by-verse teaching here on Grace to You Weekend. And now with a look at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, here's John. If I asked the average Christian for whom did Christ die, the traditional answer would be everybody. Everybody. Christ died for the whole world. He died for all sinners. And most people then in the church believe, and I'm, I'm sure many people outside the true church, many people associated with Christianity, believe that on the cross Jesus paid the debt of sin for everyone because He loves everyone and He wants everyone to be saved. That's, that's pretty much the common evangelical view. Jesus died for everybody. He paid the price for the sins of everybody. And all we have to do is tell sinners that He loves them so much that He paid the price and He wants them to be saved, and all they have to do is respond. Now if that is true, then on the cross Jesus accomplished a potential salvation, not an actual one. That is, sinners have all had their sins atoned for potentially, and it's not actual until they activate it by their faith. The final decision is up to the sinner. And it kind of carries the, the, the notion that uh, God loves you so much, you're so special, He gave His Son, and He paid in full the penalty for your sins, and that's supposed to move you emotionally to love Him back and accept this gift. And so you kind of work the sinner and kind of manipulate the sinner in that direction, trying to find a psychological point, a felt need point, play the right organ music, sing the right invitation hymn, you know, grease the slide and get him moving in the direction of making the choice. Now, we've got a problem here, folks. We've got a big problem. We saw in our last study that no sinner on his own can make that choice, right? This is the doctrine of absolute inability. All people, all people are sinners, and all sinners are dead in their trespasses and sins. All of them are alienated from the life of God. All do only evil continually. All are unwilling and unable to understand, to repent, and to believe. All have darkened minds, blinded by sin and Satan. All have hearts that are full of evil. All are wicked, desperately wicked. All desire only the will of their Father who is Satan. All of them are unable to seek God. They are all trapped in absolute inability and unwillingness. The doctrine of uh, absolute inability means that people will only be saved if God saves them. And therefore, salvation is based upon the decree of God, the sovereign doctrine of election. No one could be saved unless God saved him, and God saves those whom He chooses to save. You cannot expect the sinner on his own, no matter how he's emotionally prodded or psychologically prodded, no matter how he's threatened, no matter what you say to him, on his own you cannot expect him to quote-unquote decide for Christ. Those who will come to Christ 
are those whom the Father draws and the Father gives to the Son because He's chosen to do so. Now with that in mind, looking back at those doctrines, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of uh, absolute inability, we can ask the question again, for whom did Christ die? Did He die a death that is a potential salvation for everyone and therefore on the, on the largest uh, part it was useless? Or did He die a death that is an actual atonement, not a potential one, for those who would believe because God calls them and God grants them repentance and faith because God in eternity past chose them? Well, the only answer to the question that makes any real sense is that Jesus Christ died and paid in full the penalty for the sins of all who would ever believe so that His atonement is an actual atonement and not a potential one that can be disregarded. If Jesus actually paid in full the penalty for your sins, you're not going to go to hell. That would be double jeopardy. Now someone is going to say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like limited atonement. You say the word limited atonement and people's antennas go up. And because we're used to that kind of evangelical idea that Jesus paid the sins in full, paid the price for the sins in full of everybody. But that is fraught with so many obvious problems. But that's what the evangelical church believes and that's why it, it uses manipulation to move people emotionally and according to felt needs and by what other means they might come up with, believing that the penalty is paid in full for everybody. So that most of the people that Jesus died for are in hell. Then what in the world kind of atonement did He provide for them? And so you say, well, you, you must believe the atonement is limited. Of course, so do you. You say, I believe in an unlimited atonement. Well, then you must be a universalist. A universalist believes that everybody's going to heaven. There is no hell. Everybody is going to heaven. And that's consistent. If you believe that Jesus paid in full the penalty for all the sins of all the people who've ever lived, then you have to be a universalist. But we know better than that. We know the atonement is limited. We know not everybody's going to heaven. To be a universalist, you have to ignore Scripture. So let's just, let me give you just a handful of points, okay? We'll see how far we go. Number one, the atonement is limited. And by atonement, I mean the sacrifice of Christ by which He paid the penalty for sin. The atonement is limited. Now, let's look at this in just some obvious passages. Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10. And I'm not going to wait for you, so uh, you might want to write these down. Matthew 10, 28. We've got to go. Verse 28. Gird up your loins. Here we go. Matthew 10, 28. <laughs> Do not fear, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a hell and God is going to send people there. That tells me the atonement is limited. There is a hell and God is going to send people there. How could Jesus say you shall die in your sins if their sins had been paid for? They had not been paid for if they died without believing in Him. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 7, with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. So the Bible promises there is a hell. The only way to avoid it is to not die in your sins, and to not die in your sins you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you don't, you're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That proves that the atonement is limited. It does not apply universally. God did not intend to save everyone. He is God. He could have intended to save everyone. He could have saved everyone. He would have if that had been His intention. The atonement is limited. Now we all have to accept that or be universalists. We know not everyone is going to heaven. In fact, it is a little flock, it is the few. Which if we were to hold on to this sort of uh, evangelical idea means that the vast majority of people for whom Christ died and paid in full the penalty for their sins are going to go to hell. And that's just something very difficult to believe. So we do believe in a limited atonement. It is limited to those who believe. How is it limited? That's the second point. Number one, is the atonement limited? Answer, yes. Number two, how is it limited? Well, first of all, it's limited because not everybody is saved. Only those who repent and believe. That's how it's limited. Only those who believe in Christ and confess Him as Lord are saved. Only those have their sins atoned for. It is limited to those who believe. That's how it's limited. Okay? Very important that you grasp that. Okay, come back to that. Now here comes the key question. By whom is it limited? We know it's limited. We know how it's limited. It's limited to those who believe. It is only applicable to those who believe. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, by whom is it limited? And the popular view would say this. The atonement of Jesus is unlimited, but sinners limit its application. And we're back to what we said before. It is a, a potential atonement, the actuality of which is limited by the sinner. Now, we have to believe then that God has provided a sacrifice for sins in His Son that in and of itself is not sufficient. In and of itself is not actual. In and of itself is not real because the sinner can neutralize it. I don't mind believing God can limit the atonement. God does limit the atonement. But listen carefully to me. He limits the atonement as to its extent. You have to believe that because He didn't choose everybody and not everybody's going to heaven. And that's in the divine mind, and that's the decree of God, and that's the purpose of God, and you have to come to grips with that. I don't have any problem at all saying the atonement is limited. I don't have any problem at all saying how it's limited. It's limited to those who believe. And I have no problem saying, and those who believe are those whom God grants faith. And therefore, the atonement is limited because God limited it. I'm much more comfortable with that than that sinners can limit the atonement that Christ has provided, or that the atonement that Christ has provided is wasted on the vast majority of people. 
If you say that God provided an atonement which is only potential, which only removes a barrier so that the sinner can be saved if he chooses to be, you know what you've done? You have said that God not only limited the atonement as to its extent, and you have to believe that, but He limited it as to its effect, okay? In other words, if you believe in an unlimited atonement and you, you think you're one of those magnanimous people who believe Jesus died for everyone, then by saying the atonement is unlimited as to extent, you have just also said it is limited as to effect. It covers everybody but not potently. It covers everybody but not powerfully. If you're going to say that the extent of the atonement is unlimited, then the effect of the atonement is limited. If you're going to say that the extent of the atonement is limited, then you're going to say the effect of the atonement is unlimited. For those to whom it extends, it has no limits. So when you say, do you believe in a limited atonement or an unlimited atonement, I believe in a limited atonement as to its extent. It is limited to those who believe who are those who are called, who are those who are chosen. But I believe it is unlimited as to its effect. For those to whom it is granted, it is a full atonement. Jesus did pay it all. So, you know, these people who, who want to say, well, you know, we believe the atonement is unlimited. You say, well, well, wait a minute. You mean Jesus died for everybody in the whole world? Yes. Well, you may think it's unlimited as to its extent, but you have just confessed that it's limited as to its real effect because people are going to go to hell even though He died for them. What kind of an atonement is that? But even people who say we believe it's unlimited don't believe that. They don't mean that. They know God limited it to those who believe, and they believe that sinners limit it by making wrong choices. And then they believe that there's some limits in the very atonement itself so that it really doesn't do the work of atonement. It just makes it possible for the sinner to activate it. You know, you look at the Bible and it's pretty clear. The hymn writer got it right, and that hymn is a pretty simple hymn, and I don't know what was in his mind when he wrote it, but when he wrote, Jesus paid it all, he meant that. What he did on the cross was not a partial atonement. What he did was not a potential atonement. It was not some kind of virtual atonement. It was a real, actual atonement. It was limited in its extent to those who would believe who are the called and the chosen, but it was unlimited in its effect. For them, it was a full and complete atonement. There is no such thing as an atonement by Jesus Christ on the cross that is less than a true and actual atonement. There is no such thing as some kind of potential atonement, some kind of halfway atonement. There is no such thing as Jesus paying in full for your sins and then you paying in full for your sins forever in hell. That diminishes the work of Christ. That mocks the work of Christ. It is not biblical to limit the atonement by making it potential and not actual. It is not biblical to limit the atonement by the will of the unwilling and unable sinner. 
The atonement is limited by God to the elect, but it is unlimited as to its effect. For them it is a full and complete atonement. Now the sum of it comes down to this. Is the death of Christ a work that potentially saves willing sinners, or is it a work that actually provides salvation for unwilling sinners who by God's sovereign grace will be made willing? The only possible answer is that God provided a sacrifice in His Son, a true payment in full for the sins of all who would ever believe, and all who will ever believe will believe because the Father will draw them and He will grant them repentance and faith and regeneration. Jesus' death then is to be understood as a full satisfaction to God's holy justice on behalf of all whom God will save. The atonement is an actual atonement, not a potential one. It is a real atonement, not simply a barrier removed. And it is in behalf of all who would ever believe. And since the sinner is unable and unwilling to believe apart from divine intervention and regeneration, it comes then down to the power of God based upon the decree of God. People say, well, how do you know whether Christ died for you? The answer is that whosoever will may come, and if you come and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the death of Christ was for you. And don't hold back. Come to Christ. This is Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. Thanks for tuning in today. John is Chancellor of the Master's University and Seminary, and his current study is titled The Doctrines of Grace. And John, I know there are people who would say that the doctrine you looked at today, substitutionary atonement, it's actually a discouragement to evangelism because they say if Christ died only for the elect, why do you even need to give nonbelievers the gospel? Now, I know that's not your perspective. You don't see this as a truth that undermines evangelism or the need for evangelism, you'd say it actually encourages it. Why is that? Well, because I know that God has his people. I mean, this takes me back to Isaiah 6. So God says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so Isaiah says, oh, how, okay, how long, O Lord? And, and the Lord says, well, listen, nobody's going to listen. Uh, they're going to have ears but don't hear, eyes that don't see. Um, hearts that don't believe. And so Isaiah says, you want me to go and you want me to preach this message, but but nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to hear. And then the 13th verse in Isaiah 6, the chapter ends by saying, but I have a tenth, Hmm. the doctrine of the remnant. I have a holy seed. I love that. Hmm. I have a holy seed out there. And that is what spurs our evangelistic efforts to know that there is an elect people Paul, when he writes to Titus, says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to the elect. What an incredibly marvelous reality. We cannot fail. 
we, we will succeed because God has his chosen people waiting to hear the gospel message. And the gospel message will come to them because all that the Father has chosen will come and be given to Christ, and Christ will receive them all, keep them all, raise them all to glory. So I say the doctrine of sovereignty is what motivates me to faithful evangelism constantly because I know that this is the means that God is using to save his chosen people. If, on the other hand, I thought that this was just a random deal, God hadn't chosen anybody, and I was supposed to try to convince the people who needed to be saved to be saved, that's more responsibility than I would care to have on my shoulders. The eternal destiny of souls, and they would be responsible to me for how I presented the message or how attractive I made it or how clever I made it or how faithfully I proclaimed it. I couldn't bear the weight of that. Mm. Uh, So I I can actually go and preach the gospel with joy, preach the gospel with freedom, knowing that God already has chosen his people and that I'm just a tool that he uses to draw them in. What a holy and high calling. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, we always triumph in Christ. We always triumph in Christ because in our evangelistic work, the end is already determined and we're just the instruments to that. And yet, though we have nothing to be rewarded for, the Lord rewards us in glory as partners in that enterprise. Amen. And thanks, John, for reminding all of us that God is sovereign in every circumstance. And now, turning the corner a bit, let me make a suggestion. Head to our website and download all of the sermon you just heard or any of the 10 total sermons in the Doctrines of Grace series. All of that teaching and more than 3,500 messages are available at our website free of charge. Get in touch today. Our website address is gty.org. And again, you can listen to any of John's sermons from 50 years as a pastor and Bible teacher. All of them are free of charge at gty.org. And our website also has an online store with resources like the MacArthur Study Bible and the MacArthur New Testament Commentary Series. So go to gty.org today. And let me remind you about the impact you have when you support this ministry financially. Every day this broadcast is heard on radio stations from California to Spain to Malaysia. These are places you may never travel to, but by supporting Grace to You, you can help reach people there with a life-changing biblical message. If you'd like to partner with us, make a donation online at gty.org or when you call 800-55-GRACE. Now for John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson, inviting you back for our next broadcast when John will launch a study on the 12 disciples of Christ. You'll see what you can learn from them. It's titled The Master's Men. And it comes your way next week as we continue celebrating 50 years of unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, on Grace To You Weekend.
One continent. This is Ken Ham, often interviewed on radio and TV on the Bible's reliability and authority. A scientist named Alfred Wegener usually gets credit for the idea that there was originally just one continent. But he was mocked because he didn't really have an explanation of how the continents moved. But many years before, a scientist, Antonio Snyder Pellegrini, had read Genesis 1. Now it says God gathered the waters to one place. Seeing how the continents seemed to fit together, he said maybe there was just one continent that broke apart during the global flood. Now, his work was basically ignored because Darwin's Origin of Species came out that same year. Many people claim creationists can't do science, but they do, and they've made great discoveries. Discover more about science, creation, evolution, the age of the Earth, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And view a complete transcript of this program at AnswersRadio.com. Thanks for seeing Trippy Toll Radio. And I want to remind you to check out our website at truthbetollradio.com. And also, I have a website, smilesandstuff.com. That's F M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C O. That has my, um, my testimony how I became a Christian. 
Paths of the Seas, 
This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. Matthew Morey was an officer in the U.S. Navy who loved the Lord and His Word. Now, he read in Psalm chapter 8 about the paths of the seas. He believed God's Word, so he set out to find these paths. What he discovered were ocean currents. Now, his discovery revolutionized the study of the ocean. These currents explain global climate patterns and much more. And he made this discovery because he started with the Bible. We often hear that creationists can't be real scientists. But because God's Word is true, creationists make great scientists. We've several PhD scientists on our staff. They have the proper lens for looking at the world. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions, billions years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the By far. Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was. Have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, Change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable. 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cost. We Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. Saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. The great Isaac Newton. This is Ken Ham, encouraging all churches to start their thinking with God's Word. We constantly hear that creationists can't be scientists, but there are many creationists today doing great science. And many great scientists in the past were also creationists. Science today stands on the shoulders of scientists who believed God's Word. Take, for example, the great Isaac Newton. He's most famous for his theories of gravity, but he also established theories of light and motion, and he invented calculus, among many other things. He's considered the greatest scientist of all time, and he was a creationist. He wrote in support of the truth of God's word and against atheism. It's simply false to say creationists can't be scientists. They can. Discover more about the truth of God's Word and the Gospel message at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and strengthened in your faith when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
so strong, God is the ruler, yeah. And though the wrong seems oh so strong. discovered natural selection. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. If I asked you who first described natural selection, you might say Charles Darwin, but actually, no. Darwin got his ideas mostly from a scientist named Edward Blythe. Now, parts of Origin of Species are nearly direct copies of Blythe's work, but there's a big difference between the two men. Darwin rejected God's Word. Blythe believed God created the original kinds and that natural selection was a mechanism that allowed God's creation to survive in a world after the fall and after the flood. Blythe's view is consistent with what we see in our world. Organisms reproduce according to their kinds. We never observe one kind changing into a different one. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark attraction at the Ark Encounter when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and discover more about God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing
This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum. Here at Answers in Genesis, we constantly hear that creationists can't be scientists. But tell that to all the full-time PhD scientists we employ. They studied hard and have done great research. They're scientists. But then we'll often hear, well, they're not real scientists. But that's a logical fallacy. The thousands of creation scientists are simply reclassified as not real scientists because of the wrong belief that no real scientist rejects evolution. It's a way of attacking the person rather than the argument. There are many creation scientists today and great ones in the past. They do excellent research because they begin with God's Word. Discover more about God's Word, science, the age of the earth, and more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Be equipped and encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes.
Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies confound the academy. Bow to his majesty, he paid sin salary, took our blame on Calvary. Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy. All eyes on the mattress, price of his sacrifice. That's prize, I'm after Christ and rise in the afterlife. What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I get a sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us in, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say, worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not tradition. No kind of different. But God's consistent. No contradiction. My proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction. I'm spitting. The Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen. A lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion. We drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fix. Is our shock condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, 
in a shadow with stand up. We'll find out more about Shadow go to lampmode.com, L E M P M O D E dot C O and that's the record level. And uh Shannon spelled S H A I and L I N N E. And now we have big questions, short answers. This is from Wretched YouTube page. That's W R E T C H E D Wretched. And this is called What is Church Discipline? Even though not many churches seem to be asking what is church discipline, nevertheless, it is a big question. Let's see what the Bible says. Jesus taught in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, ixnay on the gay. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18, not the only verse. There are Cliff's Notes versions of the concept found, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5. Church discipline has always been understood as the loving act towards somebody who is living in an unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Why is that loving? Because if somebody keeps on sinning, they shouldn't be in the church. They're of the devil. Here is what a dead guy said. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there is no purpose in having a basis or a confession of faith unless it's applied. So we must assert the element of discipline as being essential to the true life of the church. And what calls itself a church which does not believe in discipline and does not use it and apply it is therefore not a true church. Why is this a big question? Because if a church does not practice church discipline, it is not a true church. Gulp big implications. Church discipline keeps the church healthy. Number two, church discipline is a mercy on the person who is sinning. It points out their egregious sin, and it is intended to lead them back to holiness. And finally, number three, the goal of church discipline is always restoration. Church discipline is not about being mean. It is about lovingly rescuing an unrepentant sinner. A big question. What is church discipline? The sort of short answer. Church discipline is the God-ordained process by which the local church calls a professing Christian to repentance with the ultimate goal of restoration. Oh, imagine my surprise that you're still here. Hey, if you'd like more Wretched, because apparently you've got enough free time, would you like this video, subscribe to this channel, and we will give you Wretched till it's coming out of your nose. You know the 
story of David and Bathsheba, right? David took a walk on his roof one afternoon and saw Bathsheba bathing, so he had her brought to him and spent the night with her. Bathsheba sent word to David she was pregnant, so to cover the affair, David had her husband Uriah killed in battle and quickly married Bathsheba. Now, there's been a growing interest in saying David raped Bathsheba. Some have gone as far as insisting we must interpret the story this way or else victims of abuse will feel betrayed by the church. That sounds too much like current social concerns are being imposed onto the text. Setting aside varying definitions of rape, the Bible doesn't say David raped Bathsheba. In fact, 1 Kings 15.5 says David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Besides, you could make as much of a case that Bathsheba seduced David, bathing in the afternoon where she knew the king would be taking his constitutional. You might say, but the Bible doesn't say that. Exactly. Here's what the Bible does say. David was a shepherd turned king of Israel. He was entrusted to shepherd the people of God, and he took another man's wife and had that man killed. From the line of David would come the greater shepherd king, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for the sheep. In mourning over his sin, David prayed, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation. And the Lord was merciful to him. No matter the sin, whether it's adultery, rape, theft, or murder, forgiveness is found in Christ when we understand the text. That is when we understand the text, and that's also known WWTT, and it's on YouTube at WTT, and also on their website, www.utt.com, www.utt.com. We're just going to read the here on Tributory. And next we got for you, this is a song, Walk With God, Right Go Fish.
was walk this dog, and that's all we got for today's Truthfully Told Radio. Um, check us out next time and Sunday. And thanks for listening to Truthfully Told Radio. So I'll go out with Yancy and friends in the beach. Bye for now.